Hi, I'm Helen Avery, and you're listening to Financing Nature from GFI Hive. In this episode, I'll be joined by Alan McDonnell, Conservation Manager at the charity Trees for Life, to talk about rewilding, carbon credits, and their £2 million retail bond. Restoring nature to this landscape at scale can create opportunities that allow that kind of social and economic regeneration and carbon is, a, is the most active source of income at the minute and lots evolving around it and nobody's quite sure where it's going to go. So we'd like to explore how high, high value carbon growing through habitat restoration on private land uh, could generate income for both. And so if you can sell at a higher price with that kind of social benefit, that kind of community share, then why would you do that? So welcome. And depending on when you're listening, this is either a very happy holidays to you or a happy new year. I know many people have already headed off on their Christmas break. Um, I'm really excited about our guest today. Alan McDonnell is Conservation Manager at Trees for Life. I had the great pleasure of visiting Trees for Life a couple of years ago and was really inspired and impressed by their forward thinking as a charity around that role private capital could play in helping them reach their ambitions of restoring and rewilding the area around Glenafric. And Alan very kindly took me around Dundragon, where their tree nursery is. If you haven't had the pleasure of going up there, it's a truly magical place. And I'd actually totally forgotten until I got there uh, that I'd read about Dundragon years ago in George Monbiot's book, Feral, where he talks a lot about trees for life. And also he says something that really stuck with me, that some 700 years ago, wild boar had been hunted and farmed out of existence in Britain, and they had this symbiotic relationship with robins. So wild boar would you know, upturn the earth and robins would follow in their footsteps for worms and grubs and whatnot. But in 2009, Trees for Life introduced wild boar back onto their land. And within 20 minutes, the robins had arrived and had taken up their place next to the boar. It had been 700 years and they were back together. So it was such a beautiful story. And there aren't any wild boar at Dundragon presently, but um, I I did see a robin near the old enclosure. And that's how I remembered um, George's book. Um, But how does private finance fit into rewilding? Let's get Alan on to hear all about it. So good morning, Alan. How are you? Lovely to have you here with us. Thanks for joining. Uh, thanks, Alan. Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. Yourself? I'm good. I'm good. Is it? How is it up there in the Highlands today? It's nice today. Nice and bright. And um, yeah, actually not that cold for a change. So um, oh. I managed to get out of here. I'll go and enjoy that. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll be quick then. Um, so, <laughs> um, so yeah, thanks for, for joining us. We're going to obviously talk about Trees for Life's journey in generating revenues from carbon credits and raising finance via a retail bond. But um, sort of ease us in. First, I thought it'd be just great to hear uh, more about the charity and its mission, what it's trying to solve for those of us who haven't had the pleasure of coming up to Glen Affric, especially on a sunny day, <laughs> and Dundragon. Could you give us a bit of background about Trees for Life? Yeah, sure. So we're a, a rewilding charity um, founded by Alan Watson Featherston in, um, officially in 1993, and he was, he was really motivated by restoring the Caledonian forest and all the wildlife that comes with that. And in many ways, that was kind of an early expression of, uh, of rewilding. Mm. We began with, and still I think the core of the organisation is on volunteers coming up and they spend time with us 
planting trees and doing other work to uh, to look after land, restore restore natural processes. And they do that in a very kind of mindful way. You know, Trees for Life came out of the Finthorn Foundation, so that idea of kind of being connected to the land and a, and a very there's real there was always a real clear place for people and uh, and heart, I suppose, in that. So it's it's unlike any environmental organisation I've worked with before in terms of the way it's, it's very open about um, people and emotion and how people feel about and connect to nature. I remember when I came up to Dundragon to to meet you a couple of years ago, there was that gentleman who had walked on a pilgrimage from London, had he, all the way up? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's <laughs> where they'd come from, yeah, Yorkshire. Oh, was it? To, to come and volunteer, it was very important. Yes, in his shorts <laughs> and, a, and a cold and dreary day, as if I seem to remember. Um, so... In terms of the importance of the Caledonian Forest, can you just give us a bit of background about what has happened to that landscape over the past hundred years? You know, why does it need rewilding, basically? Yeah, well, it's the um, the Highlands really con- constant ecological decline and degradation <clears throat> that's happened over in more than the last hundred years. It's probably taken three hundred years, if you trace it back, and the clearance of forest uh, first for timber in a range of ways, and then. Um, as agricultural improvement kind of took hold in the UK, that the highlands became a place where, um, of course, the clearances were about moving people out so that large-scale sheep farming could come in. And so the, uh, the the presence of herbivores in this landscape got really out of balance with, with the habitat and the ability of land to sustain that amount of grazing. And uh, forest cover in particular, is, uh, native forest cover, is, is what really suffered from that because uh, trees, as, as they start, try to regenerate and grow through into the land, they're they're sought out by by browsing animals, sheep and deer. So it's it's really hard, much harder in the highlands for, for young trees to come in and replace old ones. So we've got you know certainly in terms of like the Caledonian pine woods, I think it's where it's the habitat where it's starkest. We've got these fantastic looking granny pines in the landscape, but under them no young trees, no baby trees coming through to, to replace them. Really, those pine woods are slowly dying. So there's now one percent of that original Caledonian pine wood left left in, in Scotland. Similar story for for other native woodlands, and you know, native woodland is uh, is four percent of Scottish land cover. Just mm. so for what was once a really wide ranging habitat across um, large large areas of the Highlands, and uh, um, tree cover would have been seen quite naturally. Really adding that kind of ecological richness and biodiversity to, to the landscape. It's a fraction of what was once there, a tiny fraction. So rewilding is about partly about restoring that habitat, but a lot, but crucially about allowing it to find its own way back into the landscape. Having the creation, having the conditions rather where trees and vegetation and habitat can regenerate and but where we've managed to do that you know we've seen how, how the wildlife responds how species plants and insects and birds and mammals that they, they file back into that where, where the habitat's available and where they can get that where they can connect into the landscape so we can still do this we can still reconnect uh nature with itself and, and allow and allow the land to kind of restore itself and it's just a question of whether we in, in the great in the widest sense of that as society want that to happen and, uh, and and what it t- what it takes to get there and to kind of transition to from the kind of the influences that we've had over the last couple hundred years into, into into a different sort of future so you have dundragon where you have the tree nursery and sort of several things mm. happening can you talk to us just a little bit about that setup and how many trees you've planted so far so we plant nearly two million trees um and a lot of them have come out of our nursery at dundragon which is an area of land we bought in the state we bought in 2008. Trees Flex has been able to harvest seed from, from a range of local tree species and grow them on in, in this location so that we have kind of the local provenance of seed coming through into trees that we can then plant out across kind of our target area. 
and that nursery has become and because of the, the staff there and their skills and dedication you know, it's become quite specialist in not just in native trees but in some of the rarer species that are kind of part of this landscape and would have been much would have once been much more prominent so aspen is perhaps a bit of a signature species for the nursery in that they've really worked on getting aspen to flower aspen normally in our landscape doesn't naturally flower it it um, grows and reproduces itself and then sprouts up and kind of grows in there so in in many ways you can have a big thicket of aspen it's all one tree and it can keep doing that so some people call it the immortal tree oh my god but the nursery the team are working on can we get aspen to flower again and by grafting so they, they do a usually do kind of tree surgery and they they put one tree onto another and they're hoping to kind of plant trees and grow seed trees from seed can plant out and will themselves have a kind of a predisposition of flower in the landscape and then they can restore themselves so they'll be they'll be setting seed and regenerating in the landscape much more yeah that's when the, the the nursery team is this kind of they call it the torture chamber so they, they're basically stressing the kind of aspen trees in a polytunnel so they respond to kind of uh, the equivalent of an animal's fight or flight response uh, the kind of flower and set seed so that's some of the interesting and technical work that uh, those guys do. So the torture, torture chamber up there in Dundraken. But yeah. with the granny trees dying and uh, the families being wiped out, it's, it's uh, quite... Well, drama and death. <laughs> <laughs> as you would expect in the highlands of Scotland. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and as you and I have talked about before, it is not cheap to... Um, run the nursery and all the work you're doing so can you just talk to us a little bit about the costs of that and and then how that moved on to the journey of exploring carbon credits it's probably about five years ago now we had a proper kind of i guess health check in terms of financially where's where's the organization one of the clear issues is that you know we get a huge amount of value out of uh, owning and managing dundragon but it comes with costs of you know getting towards six figures a year so we had to basically find a way in which Dundragon could wash its face. And one of the answers to that has been we inherited some commercial forestry when we when we bought Dundragon. So that was harvested and sold. Uh, and um, you know, we can come and talk about some of the other things that we've looked at. We've looked at a whole range of ideas of ways to, ways to kind of bring it, come into the estate. But one of them is, is carbon, which kind of came as a bit of a, almost an afterthought because we had... Um, we were planting uh, a part of the estate called the Altria, and uh, so it's 132 hectares there of uh, tree planting, plus a bit of montane. And our volunteers are going out and planting these trees. And then for at the time, this was 2016, and I thought, well, it might be a bit of a laugh to take take it through this UK woodland carbon code thing that. Um, <laughs> Thought it'd be thought it'd be a laugh. It wasn't a laugh. <laughs> but, um, there was there was lots of spreadsheets. Was the main thing, and um, being a bloke, I didn't ask for help, which could have made my life much easier. But um, long story short, we took the, the the carbon code and the accreditation process takes you through a calculation that says if you're planting these this kind of mix of species on this sort of ground at this sort of density with these kinds of practices, you will generate X tons of you'll sequester X tons of carbon dioxide during a stipulated period of that woodland's growth. And we chose the maximum period, which is 100 years. That calculation is then validated by a third party. We use the Soil Association. And then that gives you that gave us just over 50,000 units, 50,000 tonnes of uh, accredited carbon to sell to people who are voluntarily looking to offset their carbon emissions. And you conduct those transactions through another third party database that gives, you the tra- gives everybody the transparency to see, see what the sales are. So we created those units and then 
kind of they just sort of sat there for a long time and <laughs> it's, it's kind of a it's a closed market nobody knows where to put the price at then we got some inquiries and said well should we sell at 10 pounds per ton should we sell at eight pounds per ton and garage we, we did a small deal we did a small deal actually at 24 pounds in the end because by the time anybody had kind of bitten through there's a bit more interest and we'd we calculated where we thought our costs were it was clear from uh, Scottish Forestry who kind of administer the code that it's entirely up to you and the buyer mm. where you put the price. And by that stage, we were starting to get a little wary of the, the greenwash thing. So um, what if somebody comes along, they've got a carbon footprint and they just they just continue looking to buy carbon to offset that and nothing ever changes in terms of their emissions. Yeah. So we've been really clear that if we're going to do this and step into this um, into this area with that kind of a reputational risk that uh, we cannot afford to fall foul of. We're not that, you know, we're a pretty small charity. We need to be really clear, or as clear as we can be about uh, who we're selling to and what their pathway is. So we talk to our buyers, and one of the things we tell them is that we're expensive. Right. <laughs> okay. so, <I'll> <laughs> which is, yeah, because it's, it's important, because that way, that kind of, well, that's one way of starting to put doubt in a greenwasher's mind. Yeah. Somebody's just coming in there cynically and they just want to, they just want to buy a carbon and carry on. Why would you pay at the top end? So that was one of our one of our kind of insurances. We have a lot of conversations with them about so do you understand your the sources of your emissions? Do you have plans to address those and are they credible? Uh, and what's the time scale for those plans? <clears throat> so gradually we've kind of we've we've learned a wee bit more about the kind of questions to ask. Some people drop out very quickly. It all goes quiet quite quickly, but others actually you can always sense them warming to the conversation because they want that they want that integrity in it it is where they're coming from and they, they want to kind of understand so the fact that we're kind of asking them hard questions they kind of they find that actually reassuring uh, so more of those deals kind of go through to completion right with that in mind we've gone from we've put the price up to so we sold quite a lot of carbon at 24 pounds we've sold quite a bit of carbon at 28 pounds and just recently we've, we've put the price up to 32 pounds it kind of, you know, the price is, the market is going up all the time. This is the voluntary market, so it's separate from the statutory market, which is running at a much, nearly double, over double this rate, actually. But I don't think there's any connection between the two. So where these are people who are kind of voluntary, these are companies that are voluntarily looking to offset and uh, and say they're on the, on the way to net zero and they feel this is a responsible thing to do. And if we feel comfortable about who they are, how they operate, are they credible about that? So, you know, basically the, the petrochemical industry, isn't one we deal with, for right. instance. Yeah. Amongst a number of other sectors. So yeah, it's it's kind of it's 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 an interesting space to be in. And um, but also one we think that we need to be in because I, I think you know you guys the institute has done work about the gap between where the global cost of restoration might be and address or sort of getting to net zero and the amount of public money there's likely to be yeah. in it. It's a big gap. So that's got to come from the private sector. Yeah. And that means we have to have these kinds of uh, grey conversations that we might previously have stayed away from because they felt a bit too risky. Yeah, it's a interesting. I, I'm always so fascinated by your journey because you were early to that conversation, and you might not have thought that was the trajectory for a charity coming out of Fintorn. <laughs> you know that it ended <laughs> up talking with right. private finance. So, uh, and the fact it's been so successful for you in in sort of reaching um, Trees for Life's ambitions, I think is sort of gives confidence to other other ENGOs looking to do similar. Just out of interest, what were the other things you looked at in terms of generating revenues other than carbon? 
we looked at, and I, actually this one's come back again. We looked at could we have a, a Dundragon gin? Oh. And actually, we are now having abandoned that idea. We've been approached by um, a weed distilling company called Highland Boundary, who, have, who are very much of a kind of a rewilding and a sustainable land use ethos, award winning drinks makers. And uh, we've, so we have a great relationship with them. And we're slowly working with They're testing some juniper berries at the minute. And as the tests of that come out, they'll say, does it taste okay? <laughs> um, and B, how much, how many berries would you need to distill a batch? And is that a sustainable harvest? Right. Uh, we also looked at hydro, uh, a, a kind of small hydro scheme, um, but kind of changes in the feed-in tariff. Feed-in tariff was started to taper at around the time we looked at that then, and it was quite a high capital cost, and it was, about, it, was a, it was over 20 years return on investment. And, yeah, and I guess some other ideas that are kind of like a sort of campsite, that kind of thing, little, little bits and bobs here and there. And some of those ideas are all kind of seen now in, in the rewilding centre. Yes. So coming on to that, tell us about the rewilding centre. So this was the conversation we had about where are these costs going to running down where they're going to come from. And this has kind of been the main answer. And the mantra for the group directly working on it quickly became go big or go home. Right. Nice. So um, <laughs> they saw the, they saw the opportunity. Well, if we're going to do this in a big way, can, is it just going to be another visitor centre that has some interpretation boards and, you know, I don't know, a vending machine or something like that? <laughs> right. And we thought, no, that's not really going to cut it. And there's an opportunity here, and a kind of there's enough interest in rewilding for us to use this as a as a place where people can come and learn what our take on it is. Because of course, I think it's widely regarded as a bit of an ambiguous word, and people have different takes on it. For some people, it's a really simplistic. Well, we want um, coast to coast canopy of forest, and we want wolves and bears to run around in that. <laughs> that would be my preference. And, um, <laughs> 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 but. Um, for us, uh, whilst it is those things, and kind of in, in the end game, perhaps bears might be pushing it quite a lot, <laughs> on those, but um, really, it's people need to be involved in it. So, where's the how do people fit into this, and how is rewilding linked to repeopling? Nice. Uh, and for us, it's re- that's a really close link. And so, some of the some of the rewilding centers an opportunity to kind of carry the uh, the messages about those the historic connections between people and the land and people and nature. And then inviting people to look at what's the potential for the future, whether that's in kind of uh, our lifestyles and uh, and our quality of life uh, or the economy that we that we live in with a changing climate, mm. with biodiversity kind of on a kind of continuous decline. Can we reverse that? And how can all those things kind of align together? So the Rewilding Centre will be in part an opportunity to just for people to, uh, Dragons on the road to Sky from Inverness, People can stop in. They can call in for you know half an hour. Uh, there'll be a cafe, so that's that's our kind of the money spinner is is going to be in part. Uh, there'll be an accommodation block that allows to run both education courses, uh, or that others might come and pay for a kind of a rewilding experience. So it gives us a whole uh, quite a diverse set of opportunities to kind of build experiences, and some of that will be paid for and will bring income. Uh, and we've had the um, I guess the numbers run, if you like, and what the likely demand is, and um, find that it's even post-covid it's a robust business model so um yeah the quest has been how how we get that how we get that capital cost covered to to get all rolling the rewilding center leads us very neatly into the retail bond which helped fund part of the cost of the center so could you just sort of give us an overview 
when that was, how that happened. Uh, and of course, uh, the ins and outs of it are on GFI Hive. So don't feel you need to go too technical here. But but yeah, we'd just love to sort of hear why you chose that route. Yeah, my, my finance technical wizardry is kind of limited, Helen. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so we, we're, we're building new Rewildings Centre with a mix of grant and private investment. And that kind of speaks to it. It's got, it's kind of got, it's partly a, the Rewildings Centre, partly a commercial facility and partly a charitable one. And the, the bulk of the private investment will come through a Triodos based crowdfunded retail bond, £2 million with a, a projected 6% return. Uh, and that was raised, uh, you know, amazingly in less than 48 hours. That's incredible. Was it, was it a shock to you? Uh, well, I, yeah, I mean, I wanted to invest my Mr. Boat. <laughs> so yeah the team are just blown away by that i think though it's based on a the interest in rewilding and people you know there's there is this appetite for, for green investments as you know you well know but also the i think the quality of the business model uh so part of that was using a you know a consultant who designs visitor experiences across the world really high caliber high profile places and they say they they're they're, they're really clear that yes everything kind of adds up here to what is a is a very uh be a very successful business mm-hmm. model so they and they actually said and they then they give advice and they actually said you need to what would make your more your model more financially robust is if you spend more money at the outset wow okay so the budget has been re-geared twice once to in that kind of initial design phase to say you know be able to provide this kind of facility because the audience that you're likely to attract would be interested in this range of experiences and that that'll work at this price mark at this demand and so we were able to have that conversation with the bank that even as that as those were kind of stress tested, and I should say these are all backed up by you know a whole load of data this company has about kind of algorithms and how one experience feeds into the demand, which feeds into the price point. So there's there's a lot of confidence in the projections, which then that was enough for Triodos to say yes, this will work, and then that's I think come through to partly why it's attracted the the kind of the speed of investment that it did. And it's six percent. Yeah, you know, it's hard to find six percent. No, it's yeah. fantastic. It's a real inspiration. Um, and also can't wait to come up and stay in potentially a, a treehouse up there, um, or or nearby. It's so beautiful. If you haven't had a chance to get up there, um, it's really incredible, isn't it, Glen Affric? What we didn't touch on, uh, and just want to touch on it briefly before we move on to talk about the repeopling and the community aspect of um of it, you know, sharing the profits, even was that the knowledge you learned through um, all the work you did with the Woodland Carbon Code enabled the charity to set up like a standalone consultancy. Um, am I am I right in in that? Partly, we we just we took that as a bit of a that kind of went on its own trajectory, really, where mm. we were. We've been thinking for, I think, about five years now, at least. About <clears throat> how do we scale up? Six, seven years ago, the main way the charity delivered its work was through volunteers planting. And yet the charity has this big vision for, for the Highlands. So how do, how do we scale that up? And one of the ways would be to, is, is to work with private landowners, you know, who own, that's where the, the majority of the Highlands is in private hands. So how do we work with them? What, what are they interested in? And they're inter- we believe they're interested in high-quality advice. Uh, some of them at least are interested in high-quality outcomes for nature. And they want the you know, steps they take to be to make the best possible use of grant monies available. And that all points you to a good standard of consultancy advice. Right. And that's within the charity or is it set up as its own commercial venture? It began as a partnership. 
and it has now stepped onto its own two feet and it's now a, a successful consultancy based in Edinburgh called Tree Story. Brilliant. Okay. I just think it's so fascinating because it just shows you if you're a first mover willing to take the risk, all the learning that you gain can then be used to share with others um, mm. with a commercial value. But wanted to come on to the repeopling, the rewilding and your working community, because I think, you know, Trees of Life has been so engaging and thoughtful on this point. As you mentioned, from the very beginning, it was in in the bones of Trees for Life that it was going to be about people and engaging people. And, and that's something I think we're struggling with as we're seeing increased interest, but particularly private in, in private investment in land, that there's a mm. concern that communities will be disadvantaged um you know house land and house prices will go up in rural areas etc but but you've been really as i say thoughtful about engaging community the whole way along and ensuring that projects are at the benefit of community uh so can you just tell us about some of the ambitions that you have of engaging community i think there's some work around sharing some of the profits um correct me if i'm wrong what's yeah. what are you doing before um for us it's not yeah you're right that we have kind of people in the bones and um engage in that way but actually go back far enough and Trees for Life wasn't that outward looking didn't think so much about communities in the areas where it worked and that wasn't because uh, they didn't care it just felt that you know Trees for Life wanted to get on and do what it had to do very cause driven right uh, but since then I think we've come to realize that actually the, the future needs people who live in these areas to value the nature and the land that's there that means having a connection with it and some kind of stake in it and that's challenging in a in a landscape where much of the land is most of the land is owned in you know individual in the hands of individuals. So we um I, I guess it's something that we kinda I guess looked at directly. That's looking to kind of build communities and nature and land ownership and economy all together. And uh, so we thought we'd have we we're basically having a go at modeling that with uh, some income sharing from our carbon sales. So say we've been selling carbon at twenty-eight pounds a tonne. And we have an agreement in principle with two local organisations, uh, community organisations, to, to give them £10 per tonne of each sale. And the idea is that they will ideally use that for, and they're entirely up to them how they use it, but ideally in a way that kind of allows that community to kind of continue to benefit from the land. So maybe, maybe a local access project or uh, some paths, other sorts of facilities. Right. Whatever really they want to do, there's, there's, a, there's a whole range of options and we want to be as unconstraining as possible in terms of what they get from it so they have a kind of a bit of a share in the natural capital of the land and then we want to sort of explore whether with others that can be a, a bit of a model for other for private landowners so I, I kind of just mentioned that kind of initiative is trying to bring nature and people and economy together that's called Africa Highlands and so it's a specific big area of the highlands with 2,000 square kilometers that we think that agenda could actually align and instead of having nature interests and communities and landowners in their separate silos, actually, if the, the future of the land and all the people in it needs those three things to work together, then why not, why not map out together what that would, should look like in the future? Well, we're saying that restoring nature to this landscape at scale can create opportunities that allow that kind of social and economic regeneration uh, to take place and carbon is, a, is the most active source of income at the minute and lots evolving around it and nobody's quite sure where it's going to go so we'd like to explore how high, high value carbon growing through habitat restoration peatland or woodland or the main shows in town on private land could generate income uh, for both and so if you can sell at a higher price with that kind of social benefit that kind of community share 
right then why would you do that so it'd be we're going to take that on a bit of a journey and actually we're just just at the minute if anybody's interested we've advertised a job for a, an africa islands enterprise manager oh what a great job um, that would be yeah well <laughs> hopefully there's, uh, there's there's uh, there's interest out there for it and uh, that's about kind of design what a what the nature-based economy of this this area could become yeah check out treesforlife.org.uk if you're interested in that one because um, <laughs> very interesting green finance people who want to hear about that yeah so that project's called Africa highlands did you say that's right right and um just out of interest before and i know we're sort of getting close to time that is not an easy job to connect all those different stakeholders and develop a mission or a, or a vision for the area that everyone sort of agrees on. How on earth are you doing that? Or is that what this person who's going to be employed by you is going to figure out? They'll be part of it. We've got a team leader in place. She, Stephanie, started with us last month. The hope is that as people start to appreciate the potential and kind of see, okay, here's how all this, here's how all these ideas can become practical then there'll be there'll be enough interest for people to say actually this this only works if you come together yeah that's incredible just uh, just quickly local government are they in there in the mix they will be yeah we've been talking to uh, we'd hope to get yeah a few people along and we're talking to actually highland council are very much in the mix in terms of their thinking about carbon-based landscapes and mm. features so yeah personally interested there it's funny these kind of conversations uh, have a way of just once they take root then people get ideas off them as long as everybody stays open to what can happen then all, all kinds of um all kinds of stuff happens in terms of just in conversations and new possibilities open up so we're in that we're in that really exciting phase now where just people are throwing ideas at us and they're all great ideas and we're like oh, which ones do we go with that's really exciting i'm so i'm so excited to sort of you continue that work to sort of understand what you're doing and see more of it because i think it could be a real exemplar for um uh, a lot of place-based sort of focus on investing in, as you say, nature-based economies um, across the UK. Um, we're at time, and I know you've got a really busy day ahead, so I don't want to keep you longer. Um, but obviously, you've got so much happening. Is there anything that we need to look out for from you? It's Sorry, probably. Put more, pressure, <laughs> more pressure on you. What yeah. else you got? <laughs> uh, I guess we are looking at our, so our squirrels project, and this is a really practical level, but... Um, I think you know how we, we move squirrels around. I didn't so know take, that. Well, we take um, there are squirrels basically went extinct in the north and west of Scotland about 50, 60 years ago. Are these just red squirrels or all squirrels? Red squirrels. Okay. No, red, just red squirrels. <laughs> and the native squirrels. So we um, we we catch small, particularly 20 squirrels from healthy populations um, in a very measured way from Invernessia and Murrayshire. We take them over to suitable habitat in the western north of Scotland, uh, release them, and uh, we've done 10 of these now, and without fail, they've established new, healthy new populations that have grown. Amazing. So everybody loves a red squirrel, and uh, and they're, they're at such distance from the grey squirrel population that actually, in, in UK terms, it's quite it's quite a significant conservation step because it, it it's establishing new populations at distance from the, the threat of grey squirrels. We're hoping to uh, to restart a new, a new project if we bring the funding together to do a bit more in the north of Scotland in particular. So that's when we're looking forward to... Um, and uh, but really, there's there's been there's so much heat and energy in the rewilding centre in Africa mm. Highlands that that's that's where our main shows are for well, probably for the next ten years. <laughs> but we'll see. There'll be yeah, really really interesting journeys to happen there. Yeah, I'm so excited, and uh, yeah, I say really look forward to coming up and seeing some of these red squirrels. I've never I've never seen a red squirrel. What? Um, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm looking at five squirrels right now in my garden. They're all grey. 
Um, I've never, never seen a red one. So. Well, we can fix that easy enough. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Alan. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, great. No, thanks very much, Alan. Always have a good chat. So I felt like I learned a lot there and really inspiring. Um, So thrilled that we got to have Alan on. Uh, But that's all from us at Financing Nature this week. We'll be back in the new year where we have some great guests lined up for you. In the meantime, please do check out GFI Hive site, greenfinanceinstitute.co.uk forward slash GFI Hive and subscribe to their monthly newsletter on the Hive homepage for updates and news. Um, A big thank you to you for listening and to Financing Nature Funder, the Esme Fairbairn Foundation and to our editor, Robin Leeburn of Fairly Media. Look forward to seeing you all in 2022.